How could someone who had a traumatic childhood upbringing end up turning their life around to having a successful career in the arts? Also, how can you best develop your creative ideas using a mix of artistic media? Let's find out. Welcome to Half Hour Mentor. My name is Ian Cleverdon and welcome to my audio podcast series designed to help anyone who's looking for inspiration to develop their creative skills, whether professionally or as a hobbyist. In this series, I'm focusing on the creative arts. I'm catching up with musicians, artists, authors and actors, but also speaking to some in the directing and strategic management fields of this wide ranging industry. All of my guests have been carefully chosen as each one of them has an interesting backstory from which we can all learn. If you're new to the series, please follow it on whichever podcast platform you use and go back and have a listen to the rich archive of over 30 interviews and compilations. Today, I'm launching another two-part interview and when you listen to the content, you'll understand why. My guest in this and the next episode is Megan Powell. Megan is an artist, photographer and filmmaker. She's a lecturer in art and design creative technology and photography at the University of Salford, which is based in the northwest of England. Her own work tells the story of power and survivorship, told through a reiterating, continuous narrative of judgment, death and rebirth. Her work is influenced by patterns in history, sociology and psychoanalysis, with language at the heart of her work. I first became aware of Megan when I visited an exhibition at Salford University last summer that featured the work of the final year BA photography students, including that of a friend of mine. What struck me was not just the quality and power of the work, but the diversity of topics covered. Long story short, my friend explained to me how Megan was a big inspiration to him and the other students. If you've listened to my other podcasts, you'll probably appreciate that I immediately thought that a chat with Megan would be ideal for my series on the creative arts. However, what I didn't appreciate was the incredible journey that she's had from childhood to being such a successful and inspirational teacher and mentor in the creative arts field. I think it's important to highlight that in this episode, we discuss some distressing themes. If you're affected by any of the topics discussed in this episode... I've placed some support links in the show notes. I sat down with Megan recently in one of the art studios at the University of Salford. Megan Powell, welcome to Half Hour Mentor. Thank you. Go back to your teenage years and as a child, what was the first job or career that you wanted to do? I think I wanted to be a firefighter. Oh, right. <laughs> Wasn't expecting that. <laughs> yeah. Why is that? I just thought it was so exciting. Like, I liked the truck. I liked the idea. Like, I liked the idea of like sliding down a pole and like rushing into an emergency. Yeah. So I was really set on being a firefighter, and then I wanted to be a writer. I think. Okay. Yeah, and then that eventually kind of like I, I was. Well, I, I am very dyslexic, but when I was. A child, I was almost like, like I could, it took me years to learn how to read. I had to go to like specialist outside school classes. Right. So I couldn't read until probably until I was at least seven, eight, and then I was at a really low reading level. So I was so excited by the skill because it had come to me latently that I then really wanted to be a writer because I really wanted to be able to like yeah, yeah. indulge in that. It felt exciting. So what was that trigger then at that young age to think from a, a writing perspective? What, what really switched you on to that? I loved story. I loved the idea of perspectives and how d different ways of seeing the world. I was always really, 
Yeah, just that idea of how you, because I was from a very provincial kind of like locked in town, I found it really, I noticed very young that there was just one way of thinking and it felt locked in and it felt closed in. It was in a valley, so it felt like it was insular and I felt very outside to that. I felt like I was always looking for ways to escape. So when I did learn to read properly, I found books a really good escapism and also film that I could experience other worlds and other ways of thinking. So it was something that was quite exciting to me. Right. What films and books caught your imagination at that time? So I think when I was younger, obviously, like Roald Dahl, um, Mrs Fisby and the Rats of Nim. Um, my dad would read Tolkien to us constantly, and I loved that. So, like, I loved all of the Lord of the Rings. I liked... Charlotte's Web, I used to read it constantly and cry every time at the end. Sorry for the spoiler. <laughs> um, yeah, I just was quite obsessed with those kind of like other, otherly and alternative ways of thinking. I can love anything that engaged the imagination. I used to watch Breakfast at Tiffany's on repeat. Yeah, I was obsessed with Audrey Hepburn. Right. Yeah. Fantastic. And Singing in the Rain. Also, Silence of the Lambs, which wasn't okay because I was too young. <laughs> Straight away, I'm getting the filmmaking sort of <laughs> ideas, thinking, oh, great, you know, it's really inspired me. Yeah. yeah. So, how did it, your, your sort of childhood and into, you know, teenage years, how did that develop? I think I would please my dad. It felt like a way for us to connect because we never really lived together. So, it felt like a really good, you know, like if you're partly estranged from a parent, you will unconsciously look for a bonding agent, mm. which is something everybody does. And our bonding agent was the art world. Like, he's an artist. We were obsessed with the same things. He, when we did visit him, he would often take us around galleries. And he said that I had this very kind of, like, visceral reaction to paintings, like all the other... Because there were six of us, six, six, six siblings. They would just march through the gallery where I would look with, like, awe and wonder at the paintings so we connected there and he was obsessed with William Blake and T.S. Eliot and he was readers a lot of like Blake and Eliot at bedtime again it felt like, a, like an escapism like he always lived in well, he may like he's still in a council house but he may you know that kind of thing of being on a council estate and your world feeling a bit impoverished mm. or you know insular Art gave us a way to escape, I think. But he's a great drawer and painter, and I could do neither. So, really? yeah, so he would send me on life drawing classes where we would draw still lifes every Saturday morning for three hours, where I just sat in this old church in Rochdale, having to, like, at age seven, having to draw the same thing over and over. And I just wasn't, I just didn't have that ability. I think he really wanted me to. And there was an old guy called Jack who ran the sessions. And about two minutes before your parents would pick you up, Jack would come over to your drawing, um, say wrong, and then draw over what you'd done. And then so when, the, your, when, you, when your parents saw it, they were like, oh my gosh, you're really good. And you're like, no, that, that's Jack. That's not me. <laughs> so it would be this horrible kind of like monotonous thing so I think it was you know obviously in the 80s and 90s it's that thing that drawing was the standardised way of going into art school mm. I wasn't very good at school I uh, didn't really get many GCSEs mm. but my life was super turbulent at the time and basically I, I ended up in the care system right 
I had a really good social worker called Lindsay, who I'm always super grateful of, because she made Rochdale Art College take me um, for the Art Foundation, even though I didn't really have any GCSEs or A-levels, so I'd kind of skipped those stages. Mm. And so had she'd seen your potential yeah, on the art side? Yeah, she was, she was a real tour de force, and I was so lucky to have somebody like that that was you know she was young actually like if I would have been given a different social worker I don't know if it would have worked out for me but she was she had really interesting feminist views and she was very into empowering young women so yeah she kind of forced the local art college to to accept me um and that just turned into a horrible power battle with the guys that ran it yeah where they were I was like the social inclusion student Except for there was a photography lecturer called Martin Drake who was incredible with me and he very quickly recognised, he said, anyone can pick up on on technical things but imagination and ideas is something very particular and you have that. So he gave me a distinction on my first project and it was the first time ever that I'd done anything academically well. What was that first project? It was lighter subject but we were encouraged to photograph our domestic lives yet because I lived in a care home and I, I was photographing the other girls that I was living with. Right. So we did kind of like staged tableaus in the bath, which would, wouldn't be nudes, but we'd kind of like intertwine legs around each other, hmm. lots of things. Yeah, and just kind of, it was more kind of like looking at our experience from an unconscious level, but he thought it was really interesting. And then... So what age were you at this stage? I think I was 17. Right. Yeah. What inspired you to come up with that subject matter? I think, basically, this thing has happened to me all my life that I've only just started to catch up with now, that I'm very good at working unconsciously and intuitively. When you put a group of homeless teenage girls who are absolutely traumatised together, you are like each other's everything and nothing. One minute you can have an absolute blazing, screaming rouse and the next minute you're cuddling each other on the balcony listening to songs together because everybody else has abandoned you and all you have is is each other. Yet one day they can be your basically your sibling and the next day they're just gone and you'll never hear from them again. It is a perfect example of disorganised attachment. So we would const... And I became very much... um, like a matriarch in that situation so I was always thinking of ways of improving our sense of community with each other so we would make up dance routines constantly with each other there was a rule at the care home that if anybody self-harmed they would be sectioned instantly so I had a self-harm dropping center where the girls would come to me and be like I've self-harmed we need to cover it up I don't want to go to hospital so I would clean them up and bandage it and disguise it I mean those things are both kind of bonding and absolutely traumatic because I was Mm. too young to be taking that responsibility and was that your idea to set that up yeah I mean my dad always self-harmed I'd been doing that for him anyway so it was just like a continuation for me so I didn't really consider I I think lots of things when I was younger just became so weirdly normalized that I didn't think about the effect on my own health um, there was a girl who kind of knocked on my door really late one night and she'd self-harmed on her face. And I said, I can't cover that up. They're going to see it. You're going to, you know. I felt really guilty about like that, like as if I'd let her down. Mm. 
Um, but then, yeah, so it was, it was a really strange thing, but I found with the photography that, the, that I found it was such a good bonding exercise with us. It was healthy. Mm. We could come up with ideas collectively. We could look at light. We could look at what our experience is. So it, it was like a really nice thing for us to do together. Um, and that was the, the first ever project that I did. Yeah. So how did you organise that then? Because that, that's such a... Say unusual is the wrong word, but you know that it's very personal for the, all the girls that you were with. How did you organise? How did you come up with the creative idea? Just through play. Yeah, I, I like lots of things. For me, weren't this formalised thing? It, you know, lots were instinctual ideas of play. Right. I had this idea of using different light sources, so I'd get. We'd, we'd kind of collect different lamps and torches because and, we didn't have photographic lighting. And I would get the girls to kind of cross their legs together in the bath. So then the water reflected. Lots of it was just aesthetics right. and play. So let's just try this, see if it yeah. works. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we would come together, with, you know, with those, you know, that I, there was something a bit quite magical about that, I right. think. Um, and they're not the best images in the world. They're not. I'm, I wasn't very good technically, but it was more within the process of making the work, which is something that's followed me. So, like the process of making the work became the artwork in itself to an extent. Right. Yeah. Oh. That, that's fantastic. Was that with a digital format? Or, no, it no? was on a Pentax K1000, which I still have a copy. I still have a version of that camera. It's one of my favourite 35 mil, and it was on black and white film. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, would shoot it, then develop it in the dark room and print in the dark room, yeah. And, and how did that get out? Has that been a, a part of an exhibition that you've run? No, not that, like, early work, no. Mm. I kind of started to put, think about putting it into different types of books. I still don't know how I feel about it. I mean, obviously those girls, like, you can't see their faces in a lot of them, but where you can, I wouldn't show it to mm. them. They each had their individual stories of being there. You can't gain permission whilst people are in a traumatised place, you know. I wouldn't want somebody showing images of me from that time. Mm. The ones where it's just legs or bodies, I would show because it, there's an amenity there. But, yes. yeah, I'm very respectful to them, yeah. yeah. So that feels, from what you've explained, has been a massive influence on to bringing you to the present now. Yeah, yeah, I think it was, it wasn't some conscious decision where I was like, I'm going to be a photographer and I'm going to make a career. There was a fascination with the medium. There was Martin Drake, who was this amazing photographic tutor who supported me and his technical demonstrator called John, who was also incredible. And I think I wanted to be Cindy Sherman, which every teenage girl wants to be Cindy Sherman it's like a you know it's a but I like that idea of embodying lots of different types of personalities and characters and spaces yeah you know and to be able to escape your own situation mm. but initially I was in a women's refuge where I was the youngest person there all of the women had looked after me so much that I'd had this experience of being really held and contained by a group of women who were going through the worst position of their life, mm. yet they had the strength to extend that kindness to me. Then I was moved to kind of like a care home. It's for young girls, who do, homeless girls, basically, who have been through particular situations. Um, but you had to contribute to rent there. 
also there was like really weird legislation around it where you were very discouraged from continuing with your education so it was like a battle so I think I worked like I think 23 hours at Tesco on the till and I had to contribute to the rent and some was paid by the government and I was yeah it was really really hard to continue your education but because it was an art foundation and I knew that your progression from those places are that you're giving you're given a council flat Mm. so I knew that by the time I got my council flat I needed to be en route to going to university because I needed the student loan in order to survive and I needed to also I also had to work as well Mm. so it was it wasn't like some creative kind of daydream it was a very practical survival technique Mm. of like I have zero educations I was kind of illiterate as a child I'm very didn't know I was dyslexic at the time I just knew that I wasn't very academically okay and that that felt like the only route for me. Nice. So when I got to university, I was like, okay, I can kind of breathe now. I'm kind of safe to be where I am. Right. So how did you get to university then? So what I'm picking up is that perhaps you didn't have the qualifications necessarily yeah. to to be able to get in. Um, and it was, was it a photography degree that you did? Well, did it, first I did a photography H&D because I was like, no degree will accept me with a strange you know, with nothing else other than our foundation. Mm. So I did a H&D in photography, um, and then I thought, oh, this is not... I wanted, I wanted a full degree. I wanted a full degree. So uh, I did interactive arts at, my, at MMU, which was amazing. Mm. It was run by Tony Eve, who is one of the most gorgeous characters I've ever met. He's just, like, an artist through and through, and his imagination and his way of thinking, like, I just felt, like, really grateful to be in that position Mm. yeah how did you get accepted onto the course so my friend Stephen and my friend Erin made me produce a portfolio of work because I finished the H&D I had a year just working in a bar they were like you're not doing this you're going to continue your studies (laughs) which yeah and then Stephen was already on interactive arts and he got me an interview with one of the tutors which was amazing and yeah I got my portfolio together and presented it and they accepted me but I had I think with the H&D you're able to start at second year but I wasn't they said yeah, I had to start from the beginning so mm. which which actually yeah it worked out for me I, mm. I had a really good degree experience yeah great so tell us about that uh, man met degree experience then how did that help you develop so interactive arts was quite an experimental model it was an idea by Tony Eve that your ideas are primary and the medium that you express it in is almost like a commodity it can be placed your idea can be placed into any medium so you shouldn't just be kind of thinking in in very singular ways like I'm a photographer I'm a filmmaker that it's supposed to kind of test the exploration of your ideas like it opened me up to so many different ways of working so I kind of was still doing a bit of photography, but I started really seriously doing video. And then I was also looking at sculpture, performance, lots around fashion as well, printmaking. 
it changed the way that I thought about what art was. Right. You know, and and helped me consider more of a universality mm. within that. Was it, that encouraged that during the the degree studies? Yeah, really encouraged, and like really kind of like surrealist ways of thinking or alternative ways of thinking were considered. I, I once had a tutorial where all Tony said to me was, be more free, but then he kept on just clapping his hands and rocking back and forth at me. And I was like, oh my God, is, where am I? Um, but it was amazing. He also gave a lecture about the importance of daydreaming and how you can tap into your unconscious as well as your conscious kind of ways of thinking. Um, which was a, just a totally different way of thinking for me because everything had been very survivalist for me. So the idea that I had permission to not be super productive or a high achiever, you know, mm. a p- permission to be, just be, I think. It was like, it was like being able to relax more. Mm. And then, so the first year, like, I, it was a little bit, it, it, was a, it was a cultural shift for me and one that I really needed. I also, because I had to work part-time, I worked at a bar and I became friends with two, like a group of guys that were studying philosophy and critical theory at MMU. So I would just attend the master's lectures and steal education. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved it. It was like where I really started being like, oh my God, I love critical theory. There's something about this that I, I really liked, the structural, structural ways of thinking, as well as like the more that you try and make sense of something, the more abstract it becomes. I loved that kind of pattern. So I would sit in with lectures with them and then my second year, I went, I, I did Erasmus. So I went to Spain. I went to Cuenca, which is a, a medieval town in the mountains in Castilla La Mancha. Um, and that was just like beyond for me. So it was the first time in my life that I'd not had to have a significant part time job. So I always had to work around between 23 and 35 hours a week mm. just to even kind of like survive survive. but when I went to Spain you got a grant and you got your student loan and it was economically it was at that time where Europe was cheaper so I had free time I was told that I didn't need to speak Spanish but that was not the case I went turned up on like my second day and was sat in on a three-hour Picasso lecture all in Spanish and I was like oh my god okay And, and how was your Spanish it, at this stage? Well, day? it was non-existent, because <laughs> it was non-existent. I was like, okay, this is different. So, so then I took four hours of Spanish lessons a day. I really leaned into it. Um, there were 90 other Erasmus students there from all around the world. And we would vote on what language we spoke each night when we went out. So some, some nights would be, we would all speak English, and some nights we would all speak Spanish. And... So basically, you just had to do it. You, you had to know that you were speaking as a child, but being thrown into it like that, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, it was great. Like my Spanish was pretty good by the time I finished. Mm-hmm. I could dream in Spanish. I could argue a bit in Spanish. That's when you know you've really got a language. <laughs> but it, it meant, yeah, I, I made a film there. I made a film with the other Erasmus students. I did silkscreen printing photography I, did, I just did yeah I went to the gym all the time I was super healthy I ate well it felt like I could breathe yeah you know having had the tie of needing to earn to bring in money yeah. all the time and it felt a bit released if you like there was a release I was like oh my god why do I feel okay <laughs> you know right. 
Yeah, and then I think because of that experience, I kind of realised, oh, actually, you treat your studies like you do a job. Mm. It's a a nine-to-five job. So when I went into my third year, I was like, yeah, this is just a job. I go in even, you know, I don't have sick days. I'm I'm not late. Mm. So I became really rigid and measured and organised about my work. I'd been diagnosed with dyslexia and dyspraxia by that point. So I kind of understood my neurodiversity or how it worked. So you knew at this stage that yeah. the, the condition that had been diagnosed. Yeah. yeah, and I think now, like, I think I definitely have ADHD, but it's, yeah. But it just meant that I didn't want to, I didn't want that to be a defining thing. Mm. I wanted it to like, okay, so it's this, and I, I was more strategic about it. So you could either opt to do, on your third year on the, on the BA, you could opt to do a short or a long dissertation and I thought, I really want this challenge. So I said, please, can I do the long dissertation? And they were like, well, we don't know. We don't know if your writing's up to it. So I did the short dissertation. I handed it in to the school office on time with a note that said, look, this is the short dissertation and this is my plan to make it into the long one. Mm. Please, can you give me permission to extend this? And then, yeah, they did. And I wrote about Pedro Modabar, which is the Spanish filmmaker, And I talked about the difference between legislation and culture and how his work had been influenced from Franco dying in Spain. And I'd visited the places where the Mavida had occurred in Madrid whilst I was living in Spain and spoke about kind of how misogyny and bigotry is unconsciously kept within within culture. And yeah, so I did the long dissertation. I got a first. Fantastic. Yeah, it was like the first time I'd ever done... Well, I, yeah, it was like... I probably really needed that validation. Yeah, I was saying, how did that make you feel? Oh, my God. I felt like it wasn't true. When I, when I picked up on the... When I went to go pick up my degree results, I wouldn't get out of bed. I was terrified. I had my friends phoning me going, go and get your results. I had to go to the school office, pick up the envelope. I sat in a cafe, the university cafe, which was closed, so the lights were low. I thought I would have got a tutu. I was terrified. And then I felt like it was, yeah, just one of those things where I was like, oh, my God, this isn't real. Excellent. So how did that then transpire? Like, perhaps look at to what you're doing now, but what was the journey from getting that first through mm-hmm. to, you know, teaching, doing what you're doing now? Well, again, I was quite strategic. So I knew that basically the idea of an artist was a mythology. It it still is now. You know, governments don't really support the arts in the way that they should do. And actually, economically, the arts are so beneficial. So that kind of disconnect doesn't make any sense. Mm. Well, for me. Um, So basically... After graduating, I'd been asked by the social sciences department to go and teach because a lot of my work was based on Lacan. So I did workshops for students studying childcare, philosophy um, and psychoanalysis, which was great. So I had some teaching experience. During my degree, I'd done two art pieces. One was a documentary and one was a performed video and it was looking at the sociology and psychoanalytical perceptions of love. So one was looking at how, you, how the younger generation, like my then generation, considered love. And the, the documentary were people all within their 70s and looking at different changes to culture and legislation which had impacted on our romantic lives. Right. 
So because other lecturers had seen this, they then wanted me to extend it to kind of teach. I worked for an arts collective called UHC. I went to Odd Arts, which is still going and does incredible work. Um, and I waitress still. It was one of those things that like your first year graduate and it was a hustle. Then I realised, I was like, okay, so teaching is a really good way to balance out your practice, your art practice. So I did a teaching qualification in my 20s. So I did that, did that at the University of Bolton. I did my teacher training placement at the University of Salford, which is where I work now. And then I did my NQT year, like you nearly qualified year at City College. Um, and a few weeks in, I was like, no, I'm not doing this. It was like such a culture shock. And I was like, so I thought, I'm going to go do an MA. I thought, well, I'll apply to the Royal College of Art. They'll say no. And then I'll figure out another plan. Um, so on the teaching front then, you so see you didn't like it? Yeah, I think I was just like this. I'm, t- I'm maybe a bit too young. Maybe it was it was hard. It was really it was really lecturing is super difficult. There's so many things you have to learn. You know, it takes a long time before you're like, okay, I think I've got this. You have different tiers of learning. You can be, you know, you can be consciously incompetent, which is the really, which is where you have to begin. It's a really difficult stage because you're like, I know I don't know this, but I'm conscious that I don't know this. Mm. And then you have like imposter syndrome, but that imposter syndrome is appropriate. So, and then you go into um, consciously competent, which is the place to be as a lecturer, because after that is unconsciously competent which is like when I do editing work I know that I'm a good editor so I can you know but with lecturing you have to be very mindful of how you which is exhausting like when you get a job and you're like okay so this could be my career and I could be here forever or I'm still young enough to have more disruption to my life Mm. I was like if I leave this any later I won't do it. Mm. I won't move cities. I won't challenge myself. When I was young, in my twenties, I used to always think about the most scariest thing that I could do and then go towards it, because I just thought I don't want to be. I didn't ever want to be trapped in by anything. Mm. Having heard Megan's backstory, I'm sure you can appreciate why that alone warranted a full episode. Despite having experienced such a traumatic childhood, it was clear that the seeds of her passion for art were sown at a very young age. Whilst her care home experience was so difficult to listen to, it clearly allowed her to use art to develop her creativity and therefore her own identity, which is clearly exhibited in her work. Her experience of higher education and the support of both her teachers and friends had a huge impact on her confidence and her creative voice. It made me reflect on the people with whom I've interacted in the past that have helped me develop my media voice, something which, say 10 years ago, I never would have thought possible. In the next episode, we explore the next stages of Megan's artistic development and her approach to exhibiting her own work, which includes a study that focused on her experience of being randomly attacked and almost losing her life. This resulted in her producing an exhibition called Get Stabbed and Boogie. Yes, you heard that correctly. You'll have to wait till the next episode to find out about that amazing story. As mentioned at the start, if you've been affected by any of the issues raised in my interview with Megan so far, I've placed the links to relevant support helplines in the show notes. If you've enjoyed the episode, please follow the series wherever you get your podcasts and do review the back catalogue if you're new to the series. You can leave feedback about the episode through social media by searching for Half Hour Mentor or via the email link in the show notes. 
I'd love to know what you think of these episodes, so please do get in touch. Thanks for listening, and until the next episode, bye for now. Thank you.